This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 38, and we are recording on July 19th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Episode 38, that's kind of crazy. I know, I was just thinking that, actually. (laughs) It's been... Almost a year. Is it really? I was trying to remember when you started doing it. I think October, September or October of last yeah, year. Yeah, the fall, for sure. So we're getting up on it. Oh, yeah. We should do something <laughs> fancy for our, our oh, anniversary. What should we do? I have no idea. I just I just thought of that right this second. If you guys oh. have any suggestions yes. <laughs> for what you want for our, our one year, maybe we could just do an extra law. I don't know. I'll noodle. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we'll noodle. Well, we're taking suggestions. Tell us your suggestions. So for those of you who are new to the show, this is a write-in recommendation show. So you can send us your requests for book recommendations for your book club, for yourself. If you need a thing to fill the hole in your heart that the night circus left or whatever, um, you can send us those questions and you can send them to getbookedatbookriot.com or you can drop them into the form at the bottom of the show notes on Book Riot, um, on the on the site itself. Or you can send them to us on Twitter if you want. Um, I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson and Jen is at Jen IRL, Jen with two N's. And we will answer your question. It might take us a while. Oh, if it's time sensitive, leave leave that, that in the... Um, what am I trying to say? The subject line of the email or in the like the first line of your question when you leave it in the form if you do it that way so that we can see that you need it sooner rather than later. All right. Wait, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that if you don't already have your Book Riot Live tickets, you can get $20 off with a special code from us, yours truly. Mm-hmm. If you enter in Jazz Hands <laughs> at the, during checkout, uh, you will get $20 off your weekend pass or 10 bucks off your day pass. And if you have totally missed it, Book Riot Live is a two-day party uh, slash convention uh, where we all get together with some of our favorite authors and speakers from the book world and there are panels and discussions and games and there's going to be donuts and it's going to be delightful. So bookriotlive.com is where you can find out more information. Enter code jazzhands for your get booked discount. Okay, now we can start. Okay, so I'm going to read the first question and then Jen will do our first sponsor and then we will get rolling. Okay, so the first question is from Levi and Levi says, I just started listening to the podcast. What are some books you think someone would like if they enjoy The Chronicles of Narnia, Wrinkle in Time, Anne of Green Gables, etc. I really like old books, books in the mythical fantasy genre, and books that catch you really quickly in the plot. Thank you for the podcast. Okay. Sponsor one. Sponsor one is Every Library, who I love because I love libraries, in (laughs) case you didn't know. I was thinking this morning about, like, what are my good library stories? (laughs) And I was remembering, so my very first bookselling job was at a Borders in Arizona. And nobody else wanted to work the kids section for whatever reason. I loved the kids section. I thought it was great. So I was almost always over there. Um, And I would, you would get these parents coming in with their, like, you know, eight-year-old who who needed a memoir about a gymnast for an eight-year-old or, like, a book about pilots, but it had to be 200 pages long. Like, all of these <laughs> weird 
it's very specific requests that, you know, once you get the hang of it, you realize are for school reports, right? They have to, they've been assigned this thing, and now they're at the borders trying to find a 200-page book about pilots. And you know, almost never are you actually going to find that um, in the bookstore, not because those books aren't good and don't exist, but like book buyers at corporate headquarters in you know, borders, well, not anymore because it doesn't exist. But anyway, they were not oh. thinking about, like, what teachers were assigning kids. They were thinking about, like, what's the bestsellers, like Harry Potter and Twilight, whatever. And so I would look at these parents after we had gone through, like, the two shelves of kids nonfiction that we had and found nothing and be like, have you tried the library? And they would just kind of look at me. And like, mm. the library. And I was like, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, the library. And, like, I was always trying to figure out, like, what it was. Like, had they just kind of forgotten that the library was there? <laughs> or, or, like, I don't know. It was very entertaining. <laughs> and I actually had one parent come back, like, a week later to get something, like, you know, just random for their kid to read. And she was like, thank you so much. We did find a memoir about a gymnast at the library. <laughs> And it was just one of those times that I was like, you know, people forget that librarians' jobs are to serve the community, Mm -hmm. and they don't have to serve the bestseller list. Like, obviously, libraries have bestsellers, but they also have all of those weird random things that, like, you need for, you know, your classes or just to educate yourself. Like, librarians think about those things, Mm -hmm. which is just one of the many reasons that librarians are awesome. And what every library does, back to our actual sponsor, (laughs) not just my vague reminiscences (laughs) of my bookselling days, um, but they campaign to support libraries across the country because there are a lot of um, people in, you know, weird government positions who want to defund libraries. They think that money is better used elsewhere, which I could not disagree with more strongly. Um, And so does every library. So they campaign, they talk to people in communities about, you know, education and voting. Uh, They support libraries in any ways that they can. And you can support them and their work. So if you go to action.everylibrary.org, you can see what they're doing right now. They've got informational campaigns. You can sign petitions. You can make a donation. Um, You can find out more about what's going on in your community with your library. It's a really great resource, and they're doing really good work. Uh, and thank you so much to every library for sponsoring the show. Woohoo! Woohoo! All right, so fantasy ish kind of children's books? Or, or mythical fantasy genre. I kind of like yeah. that phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll go first since you just did all, all that um, library stuff. So, my first pick for you is Zara the Windseeker by Nettie Akorafor. And I read a review of this book uh, when I first picked it up, like I think a couple of years ago, that called it phytopunk, which I thought was just the coolest word for like a, a subgenre. Phyto, that, like F I D O? No, phyto, like like P H Y T O, like photosynthesis, right. phytoplankton. Oh. Yeah, uh, because in this world, it's it's about a, a girl, a young girl. She's thirteen. Her name is Zara, and she lives in a small African village. Um, and in this world, which is a fantasy science fiction kind of world, there is futuristic technology, but it's all interwoven with plant life. So like computers grow out of seeds kind of a thing, which is like very odd and original. That's awesome. And it, Yeah. And I'd never read anything like that. And so I think phytopunk is just like the, the neatest term for that sort of thing that I, um, had ever encountered. Anyway, so the book, uh, the 13 year old girl, her name is Zara. She lives in this jungle. I mean, no. Not this jungle. She lives in a village outside of the jungle, um, 
and the jungle is called the Forbidden Greeny Jungle because lots of dangerous and mysterious creatures live in it and no one from the village goes there. And Zara is just kind of a normal kid, except she was born with um, dada locks, which are her hair is dreadlocked and like vines grow out of uh, her hair or grow into her hair uh, naturally. And in her village, the mythology is that when you're born with dada locks, you are also... Um, some so you have some sort of supernatural power or a curse or something like that. And so other kids kind of avoid her and other adults kind of avoid her. Her family is very supportive and she does have a best friend. Um, and then something unusual happens that coincides with her kind of uh, hitting puberty and she starts to discover that she does have these strange powers. And then she goes on this big quest into the greeny jungle um, to save her friend. And I'm not going to... It's it's very much like a young person going off to find themselves and discover their own power, which I think is, like, in a lot of ways, exactly what Anne of Green Gables is kind of about, and is definitely what A Wrinkle in Time is about. Uh, kids going off to, to, like, discover themselves in their own inherent competence. Um, so it's it's like that, but with this strange backdrop of technology that grows out of trees and weird kind of monsters in the jungle, which some of them are dangerous, some of them are helpful, some of them are just really funny and strange and kind of Douglas Adams ridiculous, uh, which is great. Um, so yeah, that's Zara the Windseeker by Nettie Okorafor. Yeah, okay, so my first pick is definitely like young people finding out their competence, yes, <laughs> which yes. I really, I like as a sort of summary. Uh, my first pick for you is Sabriel by Garth Nix, which is the first book in the Abhorson well, it's not a trilogy anymore. There's like five yeah. books in that series. They are all great. Um, and I, it's like, it seems like everybody knew this book but me. I actually came to these books as a grown up and I'm just obsessed with them now to the point where I'm making a modern day Appleson costume for GeekyCon because that's yes! the thing. Yeah, are you making the bells? <laughs> yeah, I found bells. That's so good. My I'm current so problem is that they're a little, I thought they were small. But the bandolier is, like, already too long, and I only have, like, five of the bells on it. I'm going to have to do some. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Ooh. But anyway, mm. okay. So this book, <laughs> Sabriel, is about uh, the main character's name is Sabriel, and her father is uh, the Abhorson, which is a title, not a name. Um, and he is basically the person who stands between uh, the dark forces of the dead uh, in this world, in this mythology, people that are, you know, the dead things, like, they're kind of like demons, I guess, um, are trying to come back. And sometimes necromancers, who are living people who have powers, will try to help them. And the Abhorson's job is to make sure that, like, the dead don't mess with the living. So, but she's been sent to school, to boarding school so that she can have as normal of a childhood slash young adulthood as possible, but now he's gone missing. Um, and so she has to sort of take up the family mantle when she's not really prepared for it and try to find out what is going on. And there's so many great characters in these books. Like, Mogget is just the best. Oh, I love Mogget, oh, yes. I love Mogget so much. Um, and there's new books still coming out in the series. Golden Hand comes out in, I want to say, October? It's sometime this fall, and I have already read it, sorry. And it's so good. Um, so <laughs> there's like a lot of good stuff in here for you if you have not read them yet. So that the first book in the series is Sabriel by Garth Nix. So good. So uh -huh. good. Remains my favorite young adult series ever. Did you read them as kids? I read as a kid. Sabriel when I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's like about right. Yeah, I don't know how I missed them. Anyway. 
Okay, my second pick for you is Serafina by Rachel Hartman. I love this book so much, y'all. Okay, dragons! Woo! Um, so Serafina lives in a universe where human beings and dragons are used to be at war with each other, but now are participating in this kind of very reluctant truce. So dragons, of course, um, were destroying. We're in, encroaching upon the human being's land, looking for food, and uh, kind of in response to the fact that the humans were also encroaching upon the dragon's territory, et cetera, et cetera. And human beings figured out how to fight them um, kind of effectively in a militaristic sort of way. So it was very much like a standoff, this war. And so the queen of the humans and the, I don't remember the name for it, but the, the, the head general marshal guy of the dragon population came together, created this truce. So they're, they're living in a very unsteady but effective peace. And dragons have figured out how to take the form of humans. And so they come to the court as ambassadors and teachers and scholars, and they're trying to uh, initiate this cultural exchange because dragons um, kind of abhor human emotions, but they are trying to figure it out um, in, you know, in that way that you try to figure out your enemies. And, of course, humans are terrified of dragons. And so there's a lot of really interesting, especially right now considering the political climate, but there's a lot of interesting uh, stuff that Rachel Hartman has put into this book about how the humans act in fear towards the dragons that, are take, that have taken human shape and are living among them or have essentially immigrated to their world. So, like, the dragons are required to wear insignia on their outfits that identify them. Um, there are, like secret, not-so-secret gangs of humans that are organizing themselves to, quote-unquote, protect people from these immigrants. It's all very, like, in the same way that um, what that Levi said he liked Chronicles of Narnia, in the same way that Narnia is, like, very thinly-veiled kind of religious allegory, I think there's a lot of thinly-veiled political allegory um, in this book that's really timely. Anyway, so Serafina is the main character. She is afraid of both people and dragons. She's a really gifted musician. She's joined the court. Um, and is teaching the princess how to play instruments and all of this. But her secret is that her mother was a dragon and her father was a human being. So she's actually kind of this odd um, mixture. And so she has like scales on her body that she has to constantly hide. She's really afraid of ever being found out. And then this plot, this like really bizarre um, political plot breaks out. One of the members of the royal family is killed in a way that seems very draconian. His head is what looks like bitten off, basically. Um, and she gets, Serafina gets wrapped up in this intrigue of trying to solve that murder. And she has, of course, a, um, a kind of innate ability to ingratiate herself with both sides because the humans think that she's human and she can speak to the dragons and understands their brains because she is part dragon. So anyway, so she goes off to solve this mystery. And the thing that I like about this book is that it has all of this mythology, and it's obviously a fantasy novel, but it's got a lot of really um, obvious and interesting ties to our society as it exists right now, which A Wrinkle in Time obviously does, because that's mostly just reality, um, and Chronicles of Narnia obviously does. So, yeah, Serafina by Rachel Hartman. And it was written, like, what, four or five years ago, maybe? I think so. The second one just came out, so... Yeah, it's it's not, like, a brand new book, which makes it just even a little more, more interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Either, I can't decide if, like, she was prescient about what was coming in our kind of political universe, or if she was writing about 
like past. Or like um, I mean that stuff has kind of always been around. We're just yeah, yeah. it's just really on the surface now. Um okay, before we get too depressed, <laughs> I will give my next pick, uh, which is The Bards of Bone Plain by Patricia McKillop. Really, you should I I had a really hard time figuring out which book to recommend because Patricia McKillop is a master of this sort of dreamy fantasy world and she has written so many amazing books and she just inhabits the language of mythical fantasy perfectly like there's never I I don't know how she does it but she spins these atmospheres where you feel like you are just like in this other place in this other it's like totally engrossing encompassing and she's a beautiful writer and I love all of her books um but the most recent one I actually just finished reading and I loved it it's called The Bards of Bone Plain and it's about a young man named Phelan who is going to bard school he's (laughs) basically in bard graduate school (laughs) um and he is writing his dissertation as it were on this sort of mythology of a place called bone plain that nobody can quite figure out was it real was it fake is it just a metaphor and he kind of is just planning on phoning it in like a million people have written about this already and he just kind of wants to finish and be a bard um and his father is an archaeologist and a very rich famous man who's also kind of always disappearing and turning up drunk three days later and is super unpredictable and he just kind of doesn't get along with his dad. And then another main character, there's a bunch of main characters in here, is uh, Beatrice, who is a princess in Father's the King. Um, Her father is, like, super into archaeology also, and he and Jonah have funded all these digs together. And Beatrice is, like, a born archaeologist, which, of course, makes her mother so mad because, you know, princesses aren't supposed to, like, get dusty and dig around (laughs) in the dirt and show up to court functions, like, covered in whatever. Um, And (laughs) they all are sort of circling around. Beatrice is working on a dig that turns up this really intense discovery that turns out to have something to do with what Phelan is writing about, which maybe Jonah was involved in somehow, and it all kind of spirals out from there. Um, It's sort of got, like, a modern-day feel to it in that, you know, there's, like, they have cars, but it's not super modern. It's definitely still a fantasy story set in, like, this kind of dreamy, otherworldly set. I mean, it's got bard school. Like, if that's not a clue, I don't know what is. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's really cool. And it alternates narratives and jumps back and forth in time a little bit. So you get this, like, really lovely, deep, old school kind of mythology story as well as a slightly more modern story that's concerned with magic. I just thought it was great. Um... But really, all of her books, you cannot go wrong. The first one I've ever read was called The Forgotten Beasts of Eld, and, like, I still think about it. And I read that when I was, like, 12. So, okay, that was The Bards of Bone Plain by Patricia A. McKillop. Oh, question two. It's me. All right. This question is from Gig. I'm going on a two-month European trip in August and looking for great nonfiction or am open to fiction, uh, audiobooks about music. I love a broad range of music from classic country to hip-hop to grunge. 60s pop, love it all. Uh, Recent books I have enjoyed have been Carrie Brownstein, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, Bob Boylan's Your Song Changed My Life, and Kristen Hirsch, excuse me, Kristen Hirsch, Don't Suck, Don't Die, Giving Up Vic Chestnut. Uh, I'm open to memoir, histories, and essays. I'm an Audible user, so I'd appreciate it if they were available in the Australian store. Whew, okay. 
I'm just going to keep talking. My first pick for you is Let's Talk About Love, A Journey to the End of Taste by Carl Wilson, which is part of the 33 and a Third series, which is a really great series of short music writing um, that lets the person, the writer in question, sort of tackle an album from any direction that they want. So some of the books are memoirs and some of them are really scholarly looks at uh, the musical you know, progression of an album and others are oral histories and they're just all kinds of different um, and Carl Wilson, as a serious music critic, had what might be considered a very, you know, normal sort of snobby attitude about Celine Dion and her fans. And he decides that he's going to try to understand what it is that her fans love about her. So he, like, goes to a Celine Dion convention and joins a message board and goes to see her in Vegas. And in the course of this whole experiment, quote-unquote, he actually talks really movingly and interestingly about pop culture and taste and, like, how... Uh, questions of class fall into it, how questions of criticism fall into it, what we as a culture think about taste, um, how we justify, you know, some things and, you know, slam others. It's a really interesting discussion about what makes something popular, what makes something commercial, what makes something good. Uh, he just really is thinking very interesting thoughts about it. And I don't always agree with him, but I really appreciated the way that he was open to trying to answer these questions. And like, he does make like it starts out very snarky and then gets progressively more earnest as it goes along, which is a lovely progression. It's just a really interesting piece of music writing as well as a cool look at like how, basically how not to be a music snob, um, which I appreciated. <laughs> so that's Let's Talk About Love by Carl Wilson. Okay, this is so far out of my wheelhouse. I did not even know where to start. So I went and asked the um, contributors, the other contributors, for recommendations. And I got two from Rebecca and Liberty who, you know, know all. So I um, have a lot of confidence in this. The first one is Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks, who I love. Oliver Sacks uh, passed away, I think, last year, but he was a really well-known um, neurologist and writer of nonfiction about how the brain works. And Musicophilia is about how music affects brain function and brain activity and all of the strange ways that our brains can interact with music. So it's not just like the parts of your brain that light up when you listen to music, uh, you know, when you're looking at an MRI or whatever, but also, like, odd stories that he's taken from his patient notes about um, people who are reacting to music in, a, in, a, in different and unusual ways. For example, one of his patients is a, a middle-aged guy who gets hit by lightning, and he survives, and it's fine, but ever since then, he's been, like, obsessively playing the piano, which he never had any interest in before he got hit by lightning, but now he's, like, all up all night composing uh, music and Sachs has these hypotheses about um, how the f part of his brain was damaged in the lightning strike and how that affects how you interact with music and all of these sorts of things. Um, he also is talking about uh, like music therapy and how that is helping or not helping people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, he talks about um, this condition called a musica, which I had never heard of, but what people who have a musica, music doesn't sound like like music, it just sounds like random noise, which is something that Vladimir Nabokov had, which is really interesting to me. Um, he also talks about like musical savants and how their brains are different. Specifically, there's a chapter uh, that covers kids who have something called Williams syndrome, um, where they have really severe mental disabilities. They can't add, you know, they can't do normal motor things like buttoning their shirts and that sort of thing. They have really low IQs, but they also tend to be perfect. Like they have perfect pitch. 
and they usually start composing music when they're toddlers. So despite the fact that like they can't function in in their everyday life and they can't take care of themselves, they they have these like amazing musical abilities. So he talks a lot about um, that syndrome, and there's actually a camp where those kids can go to be musical together, which I think is really nice. Anyway, so it's an interesting look at how music, how our brains interact with music, and how that can change when we have different accidents or diseases or um, developmental issues and things like that. So Oliver Sacks is eternally fascinating to me. So that's Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks. All right. My second pick is because you mentioned Carrie Brownstein and Kristen Hirsch, both of whom are female musicians, and Carrie Brownstein in particular is obviously hilarious. I think you would really dig Julie Klausner's I Don't Care About Your Band. Julie Klausner is, she had a modern love piece in the New York Times um, that kind of spurred this book, but she's written for SNL and she's done sketch comedy and she is just hilarious and the book is a memoir about dating in the music scene um and is you know obviously she's had a she's met a lot of musicians who did not make good boyfriends (laughs) to put it mildly um and she's you know kind of basically working her way through like you know, she's telling stories and anecdotes about her dating life and, and also being, like, in the music scene and, um, like, trying to, like, become better at not dating terrible guys. And she's also talking about pop culture and, like, what happens when you're obsessed with pop culture and, you know, being a part of the scene and all of these different things. And she's just so funny and so smart. Um, and I feel like this would make, like, the perfect, like, audiobook distraction, like, laugh out loud. I mean, it might get you weird looks on the train. But <laughs> I feel like it will be worth it. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so that is, um, I think she also has a really great podcast. Ju- Julie Klesner is, like, you if you have not previously been exposed to her look her up immediately so that's julie klausner's i don't care about your band okay my second pick is kill em and leave em searching for james brown and the american soul by james mcbride james mcbride i did not realize i read his book his last book the good lord bird which came out in i think 2013 and i knew that he was you know an award-winning novelist and all this but i didn't realize that like he studied composition at oberlin and all of this in his you know like into the music thing so there you go he's he's got a band that's so great i saw his (laughs) band finding out this like random stuff about authors i like yeah i saw his band play one time they were awesome really oh that's exciting i like that it would like they were playing a musical award ceremony the good lord bird band it was it was great (laughs) a plus james mcbride (laughs) anyway so he wrote this uh, he's also a journalist and he wrote this uh kind of biography slash investigative journalism dive into the life of James Brown and how his, how James Brown's life and success and uh, death and the stuff that surrounded his estate after his death really mirrors um, American life. So in James Brown's life, he had a lot of racial tension. There was a lot of tension around being born a sharecropper. And then, you know, obviously he didn't end up a sharecropper and that kind of, um, uh, not back and forth, but that the tension between that the class tension, that's what I'm trying to say, um, that exists in American life. Um, so yeah, James Brown's life is really just kind of an American, a very American story. And so James McBride goes looking for people that other, that no one's really interviewed. Like the, the James Brown was born uh, to, to sharecroppers and that's how his childhood was spent, but nobody really knew much about it. So James McBride goes to South Carolina and finds one of James Brown's like long lost cousins and, and, and asks him about James Brown growing up as a sharecropper and like what that was like. And it's kind of the first time anyone's really talked about that. And he also um, interviews Al Sharpton, who I did not realize was 
kind of James Brown kind of considered Al Sharpton like his adopted son. I didn't know that that was a thing, but that's a thing. Um, he talks about Michael Jackson and his relationship with James Brown. So there's a lot. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of American musical history will involve uh, James Brown. And James McBride really talks about kind of all of it. So that's Kill Him and Leave Him, Searching for James Brown and the American Soul. All right. Question three, moving right along. Uh, this is from Kate. She says, I'm moving to Japan at the end of July for a year-long teaching job, and I'm looking for recommendations uh, to supplement my packing. I'm a big fiction reader, so I'm looking for novels set in Japan or that deal with Japanese culture in some way. I'm up for any genre. I've read a ton of Murakami and, an, and am unsure of where to go next. I found books to be a great way to settle into a new place, and I'm hoping they will help me with the transition. I'll just keep going. Um, so you mentioned that you have already read Murakami, and I just wanted to quickly point out that we have a post on the site that, who wrote it? I, mean, I think it was Susie Rodon? Yes, wrote it, uh, called Beyond Murakami, Seven Japanese Authors to Read that you might want to check out. I will leave a link to that in the show notes. Other than that, my first pick for you is a horror novel, because why not? And it's Ring um, by Koji Suzuku. And this is, if you saw the movie The Ring, it's based on this novel, this Japanese novel, but it's kind of, it's obviously different because this one takes place in Japan and does not star a blonde lady. Anyway, um, so the basic idea of this book is that if there's a videotape that exists that uh, is perhaps haunted in some strange way or possessed or something, and you watch it, and then a week after that, you die. And there's a journalist who... Uh, his name is Asakawa, and he lives in Tokyo, and his niece dies in some inexplicable way that he discovers is connected to this videotape. And so just just like in the movie, he goes looking for um, what the, where the videotape came from, the origins. He does a lot of analysis of the contents. And the thing that I like about this book that I think will, you know... Um, not be helpful, but will maybe be interesting to you moving to Japan is that it, it ranges all over Japan. So he starts off in metropolitan Tokyo uh, to start investigating the, the death of his niece. And then he ends up like in the countryside and on a volcanic island and like way up in the mountains in a resort trying to figure out what um, where this tape came from and how it's killing people. And since he's watched it, how to like save himself. Um, so it's a really fast read as a lot of horror novels are. Um, so maybe read it on the plane. I think that would be kind of cool. You can get really wrapped up in it. And it is horror, but I did not find it particularly horrifying, maybe because I had already seen the movie. I don't know. Um, but if you're, if you're like, sensitive to really scary stuff, I feel like it's kind of low on the scale of scary. Um, but it, it takes you all over the country, which I think might be interesting to you. So that's Ring by Koji Suzuku. Uh, okay, so my first pick for you... Amanda had, like, the horror and the noir nailed down, which, like, sent me looking for new stuff. So Sorry. I just read... No, it's okay. It's fine. You got to the doc first. Um, so, so I went looking for... I had one thing in mind, but then I went looking for other things, and I found this book, Snow Country, by Yasunari Kawabata, uh, translated by Edward G. Seidensticker, and it's considered to be a classic. Um, Kawabata has won a Nobel Prize, um, and this book is considered to be his masterpiece, and it's sort of it really reminded me when I was reading it of uh, Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann in that it's like this isolated like sort of mountain snowy place where you go to have feelings about things um, <laughs> particularly like unrequited dramatic feelings about women like that's that's like a whole genre I think in classics and this this has that same feel to it um, 
There's a man named Shimamura who is sort of a wealthy, like, man about town. And he goes off to the snow country once a year or so, um, which is, I guess, like, totally separate outside the cities. You go to these places where they have hot springs, and um, it's it's where you don't take your wife. Like, you mm-hmm. go, and they're a geisha, and you have, you know, sort of your man time or whatever. Um, but so Shimamura goes, and he, his first trip to this one town, he meets a woman who was not then, she was an apprentice geisha at that point, but wasn't a real geisha, and they kind of have a friendship that feels more emotionally heavy, um, and he promises her that he will come back, and then he does, and she's a full geisha, and they have this affair, and um, their feelings are very complicated, and there's also this other woman that he's sort of comparing her to, uh, even though he doesn't really know her, and it's a really... It's one of those books that's very quiet. Not a lot happens until the very end, and I don't want to, like, spoil it. Um, But so not a lot happens, and it's very much about, you know, the emotional state of the narrator, and you're really following Shimamura, and he is so clearly sort of dabbling in life like he his job he's a he writes about western ballet and he's never seen a western ballet and he's kind of in the same way that he is fascinated by something that he doesn't actually want to experience he is feeling that way about love so he's fascinated by the idea of falling in love with one of these women but he's clearly not emotionally capable of it and um, that tension sort of forms the novel so it's a it's it was an odd read it was a really interesting one there's a lot of cultural references in it that I thought were that I had to go look up and that were very interesting to learn about. Um, and it's definitely very atmospheric. Like you feel like you're there in the mountains and the snow and seeing what the main character is seeing. So that is Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata. Okay, my second pick is Noir. It's called The Gun. It's by Fuminori Nakamura. And this is out from, I think, Soho Crime? Yeah, Soho Crime. Um, anyway, so it's about a young man, a student. His name is Nishikawa. And he goes for a walk one night in Tokyo along a riverbank. And he stumbles across a dead body. And next to the body is a gun, which um, he becomes immediately obsessed with. Like, he, he takes the gun kind of ignores the body, <laughs> um, takes the gun, goes home, polishes it, hides it, go- and then tries to go on about his life, but he is kind of being eaten up inside by the knowledge that he has this weapon. And a thing to kind of know background-wise about that is that guns, handguns specifically, it's a revolver that he finds. Handguns are not common in Japan, and so finding it um, or being exposed and having in your possession or having in his possession a weapon of such uh, violence, inherent violence, and purposeful, you know, destruction, that's why the thing exists and what it was built for, um, kind of just consumes him. And so the book is really short, and you're just kind of following him in his daily life. Like, he goes to class, he has a a series of affairs with a, or not a series of affairs, an affair with a woman several times whose name he never learns. And he calls her T in his phone for toast, because, like, she made him toast once, and he doesn't know her name, um, or doesn't tell the readers at any rate. Um, and then he, at the same time, is trying to very clumsily seduce another student that he's attracted to. Um, his father is dying, and he's just sort of dealing with this stuff, this kind of just, like, life stuff of a young man living in Tokyo, but the whole time he's got this um, this gun. And it's, was it Chekhov that said, if you introduce a gun, you have to fire it? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a spin on that, the fact that the gun is introduced into his life and he's going about his day and then 
gets sort of obsessed with the idea that he has to use it. Like, it's not enough to just have it. He has to use it. So it's really an interesting uh, commentary on the, the existence and the ownership of these of weapons. But it's, you know, aside from that, a really noirish, very, like, dark, and there's a lot of rain and, like, gritty Tokyo underbelly kind of stuff, which I really love. Um, so that's The Gun by Fuminori Nakamura. Mura, sorry. Nakamura. We read his book last winter. We parted from Mystery Book Group, and it was so disturbing um, and really interesting in, in, like, a really fascinating way. That one is about a man who, a reporter who is trying to interview this murderer who's been, well, he's been in prison for a murder, and he insists he's innocent, but the evidence is, like, overwhelmingly against him, and it, like, kind of spirals out of control. It's really intense. Um, okay, but so my second pick for you is a very dark, really amazing satire of a book called My Year of Meats by Ruth Ozeki. Um, Amanda has recommended her newer novel, Tale of Time Being, before. Um, this one is just... My favorite. Um, it's so weird. Okay, so let me <laughs> describe it to you. So it is about a documentarian named Jane Takagi Little, who is half Japanese, half white. Um, and she lands this job producing a Japanese television show in America uh, that is sponsored by, like, the American meat exporting business. And it's called My American Wife. And, like, the concept of the show is to go around and, like, tape all these, like, quote-unquote, wholesome American housewives, like, make making their favorite meat dish um, in and then they air the show in Japan in order to encourage Japanese wives to buy more meat because that is what the meat exporting business wants. Um, and she thinks when she first takes the job that she can like make this real art like that even with the constraints of the job she can make it awesome um, and she in the course of filming this documentary starts to discover some really horrible things about the meat industry uh, and I should mention this was published in 1999 so some of the stuff like is very prevalent now some of the stuff actually I didn't know and I feel like I should have known anyway if if you want to become a vegetarian, this is a great book. <laughs> um, and then the other narrative in the book is a woman named Akiko, who is a house... She's married to one of the uh, ad agents, the workers who's working on this show. And he is a horrible human. He's abusive. Um, and she has, like... She's trapped in this marriage, and she's developed an eating disorder, and they want to have kids, and there's conception issues, and it's... Her life is really, really hard, and he's making her watch the show and, like, fill out a questionnaire about it. And so she starts developing sort of a relationship with the show, and the narrative gets tossed back and forth between Jane and Akiko... Um, and I will say, like, this book should come with trigger warnings, like, there's sexual assault, and there's eating disorder stuff, and there's a lot of violence against animals, because we're, they go to a meat packing plant, um, and that's, like, disturbing as all get out. But if that stuff doesn't trigger you, it's so good, and Ruth Ozeki is so good at balancing that, like, dark, dark humor with, like, being real about stuff, so she's not, like like dismissing it with her humor she's highlighting it with her humor uh it's just it's just ooh, this book oh it's so good okay so that's my year of meats by ruth ozeki all right okay next question it's me this question is from bex at the end of july i am flying to las vegas 10 hours on a plane and was hoping you could recommend some things to read that will give me the flavor of the place without being a rough guide book i read I read anything except crime, <laughs> so any genre, including factual, will be welcome. Uh, okay, so, yeah, all right. Amanda, you go first. Okay. <laughs> when I read this question, I had, like, 
five books pop in my head at once. And then she said, I read everything I except know. crime. And I was like, no. <laughs> All of my books about Vegas are about the mafia. <laughs> or like murders and the underbelly yeah. of whatever. Yeah. yeah. Same, same. <laughs> or like, yeah, like showgirls or mm-hmm. being murdered in back alleys. Because that's apparently what I read. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, so my first recommendation for you is The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Which is huge. So if you want to read it on the plane, maybe take it an ebook because it's just like 800 pages. Um, anyway, Donna Tart is amazing. Um, she wrote The Secret History, which is a book that I reread every year. And I really loved The Goldfinch. The Goldfinch was kind of a contentious book. I think people either loved it or hate it. And I loved it. So it's about a boy named Theo. He's 13. He lives in New York. And his uh, he's at a museum of the MoMA, I think. Or I don't remember which one. But uh, one of the art museums in New York with his mother and there a bomb goes off and his mother is killed and he wakes up and in the in the museum right after the explosion and uh, steals a painting like out of this random no like just completely nonsensical impulsive decision that 13 year old boys make he takes a painting that uh, in the confusion and uh, you know steals it and so his mom his mom is dead his father left his family a while ago so he's taken in by the family of his, of a wealthy friend who lives in Park Avenue, and he has to deal with navigating that new world. Eventually, he goes to live with his dad in Las Vegas. His dad um, has a job, quote-unquote, question mark, uh, which in reality is like he's a, kind of a low-level criminal. His he, his girlfriend lives with them, his, um, who she's not a great person. And they live... The thing that I like about this book, uh, and especially the parts in Vegas, and I think most of it takes place in Vegas, is that it's a very modern look at Las Vegas. So they live in like a giant McMansion suburb development um, that they bought for a song because it takes place right after the real estate bubble uh, burst. And so the neighborhood is essentially abandoned. Like the buses for their, to take the boys to school don't even come all the way down to the neighborhood. They have no neighbors. It's just a really creepy kind of haunted feeling um, that you get when you read these sections about like the outskirts of Las Vegas and there's not a lot in the book that takes place in like, like on the strip, like people aren't going to casinos except for maybe his father. And, but you don't read about that, but it's just about like the daily life of living in a city whose economy is in the toilet as a kid, which is a kind of fascinating perspective, I think. So while he's in Vegas, he becomes friends with this boy named Boris, who is an amazing, bizarre just completely bonkers character. Um, and they grow up together. And the whole time, I'm not going to give away any more plot, but the whole time his life revolves around what to do or not do with this painting that he's stolen. Um, and the sections of, about Vegas are really, I don't know, like depressing, but enlightening. And they just feel so true to life. So that's The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Which All I right. Loved. Oh, sorry. That's uh... fine. <laughs> My first pick for you is perhaps a bit obvious, but it is a book that I love. It's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. (laughs) I am a huge fan of Thompson's writing. Um, It is not without its problems, but he, boy, he knows how to tell a story. Uh, And, you know, whether or not that story is like 100% factual, it's like, well, but he's so good at it, you kind of don't care. Um, And he is very, like, buried in all the drugs and weird, you know, obsessions and crazy crime-ridden, you know, sprees through wherever he is, um, is some really sharp commentary on American life. And, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is, is like, you know, there's been a movie. It's, it's, it's pretty well known. But I think if you haven't read the book, I feel like not that many people have actually read the book. His, it's just like, 
it's the weekend road trip on LSD that like you never thought you wanted to read about, but it's a really compelling, fascinating read. Um, and it's definitely like the, you know, it's the glitz and the glamour and the underbelly and the drugs, but it's not a murder mystery. So <laughs> I feel like that makes it okay for this question. Uh, so yeah, so that's, I mean, I don't know what else to say about it, like other than that you should read it. It's, it's Hunter S. Thompson. It's crazy. Uh, but yeah, so that's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. My second pick for you is Play As It Lo- blah, 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 blah. Word <laughs> soup. Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion. Oh my gosh. Um, anyway, so in the same way that the goldfinch takes on Vegas and like our current kind of nihilistic overconsumption capitalist sort of thing, which is very Vegasy, plays it play it as it lays is uh, the same sort of thing, but in the '60s. So it's the same Vegas, but a kind of different Vegas. Like it's the same glitz, glamour, nihilism, um, but there aren't you know there's like no mention of McMansions or whatever. And Play It As It Lays, I think, is a really great plain read because it's only, like, 220 pages or 200 pages. Um, So you could finish it and probably still have time to read something else when you're on the plane. So uh, it's about a woman named Mariah, um, spelled Maria, but I'm pretty sure she makes a point of saying that it's pronounced Mariah in the play, uh, who is an aging actress who's uh, no longer successful. She's just had an abortion. Uh, She has a child who's got developmental issues, who is in an institution, and she's just a really fatalistic unlikable character which is kind of a thing that I love she's got a lot of ennui um, and she travels from between uh, Hollywood and Vegas and then like out around Vegas into the desert so there's a lot of like metaphor as metaphor of Vegas and the desert as you know the dryness of your soul kind of stuff going on here Um, and I'm realizing now that I did not recommend anything about Vegas as a happy place but Maybe you could find something else, (laughs) find someone else to recommend this for you. Um, But this is a really quintessentially 1960s book. And it was it was uh, it's been talked about for forever is like capturing the mood of a generation of people who grew up or not grew up, um, but were grownups in the 60s during all of that change and all of that unrest, that social unrest and that civil unrest. And um, as we were coming away from the sort of goody two-shoesness of the 50s, and a lot of that is in this little book. I mean, Joan Didion is a, like, she wields a scalpel, right? Her pen is, like, so precise. And despite the fact that this isn't a book where, like, a lot happens, um, it is very much about place. So, Vegas is she's not describing like the lights or the glitz or any of that but you you feel it just feels very much like a character which is a thing that I love um so yeah so let's play it as it lays by Joan Didion who doesn't love Joan Didion really I mean I mean um there was a I'm gonna leave a link to this in the show notes also but there was a really great essay that went up on Bookwrite today by Shara Lee one of our contributors about reading Joan Didion while in Vegas which I thought was nice so anyway you can read that um so while we're here before we move on to our next question i'm going to talk about our second wait, sponsor wait, oh wait i didn't get to talk oh, about my second pick <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> which actually kind of has some happy moments in vegas so <laughs> oh yay uh, <laughs> it is the melting season by jamie attenberg uh she wrote the middle Steens, which you may have heard of because it was like a national bestseller um and saint Maisie and a bunch of other great books this is one of her early books and it's a really interesting story i think because so it's about a woman named Catherine. Madison, who is headed to Vegas. Uh, She's basically running away from home. She is running away from a bad marriage. She's from a small town in Nebraska. Her family is a disaster. She just is like a woman who has never quite found her voice. Um, And she, like, is 
like making a last ditch effort and like has a suitcase full of cash and is going to Vegas um, kind of to have the ex- she's kind of setting out to have the experience that like you see in all the movies about like the bachelor weekend in Vegas. Like what are all mm-hmm. those, you know, movies with Bradley Cooper and whoever um, about like, you know, having that lost weekend. So that's kind of her plan. Um, She wants to become a totally new person who does the crazy things and is just, like, has nothing to do with her former self. Um, When she hits Vegas, instead of, like, having her lost weekend, she ends up making friends with a couple of locals who really help her find her voice um, and like in a way that she is not expecting. And so then it's a question of like, okay, now what does she do? Like she can't just be on the run with a suitcase full of cash. So like, and she can't just stay in Vegas indefinitely. So what is she going to do with her life? Uh, it's a really interesting story. There's Attenberg is doing some cool stylistic things with, uh, with the main character as well that I like don't want to, you know, say to like prejudice you one way or the other. But anyway, I think it was really interestingly written. Um, and it is, it's just like a beautiful novel about a woman trying to like come to terms with what her life is and what it could become. So that is The Melting Season by Jamie Attenberg. Okay, now we're going to talk about (laughs) my bad. (laughs) Amanda doesn't want you to have happy, affirming books about Vegas. Apparently, because I got all sad that I couldn't talk about crime. (laughs) I'm sure Vegas is a lovely place where very normal things happen. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Anyway, so our second sponsor is ourselves. Uh, I'm going to tell you about our book mailboxes, which if you guys were familiar with our quarterly subscription then you'll kind of get what we're, uh, you'll pick up what we're putting down here. So our book mailboxes are replacing the quarterly program, which we are not doing anymore. Um, So these are periodic boxes of books and bookish stuff that we are putting together all based around a theme, just like the quarterly boxes. The differences here are that they're not subscription. So if you buy one, you're not going to automatically be subscribed to buy another one. Um, Also, since we aren't with quarterly anymore, we have a little bit more leeway, well, a lot more leeway to include more exclusive stuff that we are designing specifically for the boxes and um, to include different, uh, more interesting to us books and things like that. So the books are very variety. Um, The first one that went out at the beginning of the month sold out in 24 hours, and that one was the the theme of that one was food, and it came with... um, some food memoirs and some really great custom made, like a custom made apron with a George Bernard Shaw quote on it. That was really nice. Anyway, we've got one, a YA box that's up that just went for on sale. I think yesterday, we've got a few more of those left. So I'll leave a link uh, in the show notes. um, And hopefully, well, not hopefully I'll just, I'm taking a gamble that there will still be some left um, of the YA box when this show goes up in two days, but who knows? We'll see. Um, at, at any rate, you can sign up to be in the waiting list for the next box that comes out in September. And the people who are on the waiting list get notified when they go on sale before we start announcing it to the internet. So you'll get an email that the box is on sale. So it gives you a better chance. Most of the boxes uh, went to people who were subscribed to the um, waiting list newsletter uh, at the beginning of the month. So uh, there will be links for you to sign up for the for the next one in September and also a link to the one the YA box that's on sale right now if there are any left. All right, moving on. So question five, this is from Anne. Anne says, I've been a voracious reader as long as I can remember until a few years years ago when I started grad school. Between a rigorous degree program and two jobs, I've fallen out of the habit of reading for pleasure. For once, I'm about to take a non-working vacation beginning on August 1st. I'm hoping to take the opportunity to get 100% away from academics and recharge. 
Um, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for books that could help me rekindle my love of reading for pleasure. The kind of book that you dive right in and come out dazed the way I used to feel when a new Harry Potter book came out and I read them in less than 24 hours. In general, I tend to like sci-fi, fantasy, or YA. Um, let's see. I, but I will read outside of these genres based on recommendations. So that is Anne. I'm going to stop now. Okay. My first pick for you is my favorite urban fantasy series um, that I'm recommending because you mentioned Lunar Chronicles and uh, Throne of Glass series and Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Um, so it, the first book in the series is called Magic Bites by Ilona Andrews, which is actually a husband and wife writing team. Um, and this is the Kate Daniels series. And Kate Daniels is like the grouchiest <laughs> heroine uh, of my dreams. Um, she is a person who has a lot of power that she has to hide for reasons that you don't really find out until the series sort of moves along. So when you kick off with Magic Bites, you're like, she lives in Atlanta, but it's in Atlanta that's a post-magical catastrophe Atlanta. So what has happened is that magic has sort of resurged. Like, magic used to be a thing, and then technology took over. and But the imbalance got to be so big that now magic and technology work in alternating waves. So sometimes your car works, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can cast spells, and sometimes you can't. And this is the world that Kate lives in. Um, and she is sort of a mercenary for hire. She works for a couple different organizations. She's kind of like a gumshoe. Like, she takes on protection duties or, you know, she investigates some things as, like, part of her job, but she's kind of at loose ends. Like, she doesn't really have a steady job or a steady income and is kind of struggling to figure out what she's going to do with her life. Um, and also... There's, like, all kinds of crazy stuff going on around her. Her guardian gets murdered. Um, she kind of gets drawn into this big power struggle. There's all kinds of cool world building in this series. There's necromancers who can control vampires, but the vampires are not the vampires you're familiar with. There's shapeshifters. Um, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on. And I just, this series is, like, my, it's my vacation read. It's my plane read. It's my life is too stressful. I can't think about things read. It's just, like... There, and, like, there are 13 books in this series, so there's a bunch of it uh, to keep you going. So that is Magic Bites by Ilona Andrews. Okay, my first pick for you is The Bees by Laylene Paul, which is just the weirdest. It's I just love this book, too. I so did, good. So, so weird. Yes. And it's, I heard it first pitched to me as The Handmaid's Tale meets The Hunger Games, but with bugs, which, of course, I was automatically into that. Um, and it seems fairly accurate. So it's told uh, from the... The per well, not the perspective, but the main character is a bee who lives in Beehive. Her name is Flora717, and she's very low down on the totem pole of the um, social hierarchy of bees. She's a sanitation bee, so her job is to clean the hive and all of that. Um, and so she does it, and she's prepared to serve in, in every way that she's expected to serve uh, the queen and her hive. But then she discovers, and it is discovered, that she has kind of like a weird ability that bees... Uh, born into her, for lack of a better word, cast, don't normally have. And so while bees that don't fit into their specific roles are usually killed instantly, she's reassigned to do something else, um, feed the newborns who have just hatched, and then she's reassigned again to become a forager so that she can fly. Um, and eventually she ends up in the queen's inner sanctum kind of a thing where she discovers a bunch of really awful secrets about both the queen and the hive. Um, there's their fertility police. There's like a religious order um, that guard 
what is essentially the hive mind, their kind of thought police. Um, but Flora has figured out a way to kind of hide what she's thinking from the fertility police and, and, and the high priestesses. And it's all just so strange. And eventually she um, kind of rebels in a way that I'm not going to give away because of spoilers. But if you've ever wanted to read a book, uh, like a social dystopia that takes place in a beehive, this is really the only one that I think exists. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, a, it's such a page turner and it's so interesting. And I got so like wrapped up in what was going to happen to this bee. Like I just kind of forgot she was a bug, I guess. <laughs> Although are bees technically bugs? Or I don't know. Anyway, um, not important. Um, but it is, I mean, it's not Harry Potter, but I read this book in one sitting and it's not tiny, you know, uh, it's almost 400 pages. Um, but I think it'll really get you back into um, what fantasy and science fiction can do. Like this totally weird and original thought um, used to comment on our society right now. So that's The Bees by Laylene Paul. So weird. Super good. Super weird. Uh, okay, my second pick for you is Prophecy, which is the first book in the Dragon King Chronicles by Ellen O. Um, I recommended this one because you mentioned Graceling, which, like, all of the hearts. Um, and this one has another great female, like, warrior character. Um, Kira is, she's the only girl in the king's army, and she's the prince's bodyguard. And she is also sort of an outcast um, because of her powers, just like uh, Katza is. Um, she can slay demons, and but people like don't really understand how her powers work or what she can use them for, and so they're very uncomfortable around her. Uh, and then there's, of course, a big plot um, that she gets drawn into, and so she has to go on the run with the young prince, uh, and they're trying to figure out how to satisfy this prophecy. And, I mean, it's just, like, it's action-packed, and it's really smart, and it's also one of the, like, there's, an, there's you know, Ellen O is part of the We Need Diverse Books movement from the very beginning, and you can see why, like, this book has a really amazing uh, mythological backdrop, but it's not Western, it's Asian, and it, it's really beautifully done. There's so much cool scenery and culture and it just feels very fresh um and new even though she's taking a story that like is seems to be very familiar um you know the girl with the weird powers who nobody trusts like that's that's certainly a story we've heard before but Eleanor is telling it in a way that feels very fresh and very new and is really beautifully done um and all of the books in the series are good i think the third one just came out or is coming out this year uh but the first one is prophecy so that's prophecy by ellen o Okay, um, you mentioned that you like YA, so my second pick for you is The Moth Diaries by Rachel Klein, which I just read. <laughs> this book! Oh my god, <laughs> sorry. It's so great. It's um, it's in a very gothic kind of tradition. It, it reminds me a lot of both Dracula and The Turn of the Screw, that Henry James uh, novella. Anyway, it's about a 16-year-old girl who's in a boarding school. She is best friends with a classmate named Lucy who lives in the room next to her. And then a new girl comes. Her name is Ernessa. She's got a lot of mysterious elements about her. She's very pale. She never comes out of her room. No one ever sees her sleeping or eating or any of that. And then a bunch of deaths start happening that all seem to have something to do with Ernessa. But nobody sees the connections except um, our narrator. And the book is told uh, in a diary. So you're reading her diary, which does give it that kind of um, Dracula-ish feel. Dracula being, of course, a collection of letters and diary entries. And the question at the heart of the book is, is Ernesta a vampire? Which the narrator 
sort of convinces herself that she is, and she commits a crime, um, trying to defend her and her herself and her classmates from Ernesta. And in the same way that, like in the turn of the screw, um, you don't know if the narrator has witnessed a haunting or if the narrator is just slowly going crazy. That's kind of what's happening here. You don't really know if the narrator is witnessing a a vampire invading a boarding school or if the narrator is just kind of slowly losing her mind for some reason, um, maybe having to do with the death of her father. You don't know. Um, so it was pitched to me, well, not pitched, but described to me by Sarah McCary on Twitter. She said it was um, lesbian YA goth boarding school vampires, which is exactly what it is and is so <laughs> in the center of my wheelhouse. And I just really loved it. It's very slowly ominous in the same way that, um, you know, the best of like 19th century Gothic novels are. The build is really slow. It's not like really graphically violent. There's not ripping off of heads or like uh, lots of blood spilling, but it's it's more about the, the mental effects uh, that that kind of horror can have on a person. So that's The Moth Diaries by Rachel Klein. Are we out of And that's time? it. Yeah. Yeah. That's our show. Yep. Jazz hands. Um, so please go. Oh, which speaking of which, don't forget you can use that term, jazz hands, to get twenty dollars off your book right life. There's a reason that's our code. <laughs> it is. Um, so if you like the show, please go rate us on iTunes or leave a review. It makes the show easier for people to find. You can find us on social media. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen is at Jen IRL. And thank you very much to our sponsors, Every Library, and ourselves, the Book Mailbox. And we will see y'all next week. <laughs>